Welcome to the Central City Podcast. I'm Joe Graves, a pastor at Central City Church, and uh, excited to have you with us. Um, we're changing a few things on our podcast, so I wanted to let you know that. Um, we've started sharing our testimonies, our faith stories, every week in church, and we've decided to include these as part of our podcast so that you can hear um, real people talk about uh, their relationship with God in real ways. So at the beginning of the podcast, you'll hear a brief story, about four or five minutes, and then after that, we'll get into the sermon for the week and uh, whatever series we're in. So thanks for listening, and we hope that God meets you during this time. Good morning. Um, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, um, as Joe said, oh, thanks. Um, I direct the Kitty City Kids Ministry here at Central City, so I'm often with the kids during this part of the service. So um, it's nice to be here with you. Um, my email is up on the screen in case I say something um, that you would want to talk more about at some point. Um, please feel free to reach out. Um, my faith story started when I was young. I grew up in a Lutheran church that was well known for having this enormous youth program. And um, I was also blessed to have a mom who followed Jesus and made, you know, going to church one of the non-negotiables of my childhood. Um, incidentally, the other was learning how to swim. Um, and so it was, you know, whether I wanted to or not, I did need to go to church and learn how to swim. Um, and today I'm actually very grateful for both of those things. So um, I did learn to swim and I did um, go to church. And I'm, um, the youth program at my church, among other things, provided some really great adult volunteers. Um, and they showed me that being a follower of Jesus didn't mean that you had to be boring or serious all the time, that in fact, the gospel of Jesus is, is what gives us something to celebrate and gives us fun and joy. And, and that was a really meaningful um, thing for me to learn. Um, I had definitely experienced God. Um, I had been saved or accepted Jesus into my life or lived into my baptism. However, your denominational upbringing sort of describes that process of you like getting on board and wanting it to be your own, not just what some adult in your life wanted for you or some community expected of you. But, um, you know, I was in. I believed it. Um, the problem was that something significant in my life still didn't feel right. Um, and it was way down deep. I, I didn't feel 100% that freedom that Christ offers. Um, it wasn't until college that I was reading an ad in the school newspaper that kind of looked like one of those personality quizzes. Um, and some examples of the questions were, do you read people well? Um, do others describe you as empathetic? Do you sometimes find yourself seeking the approval of others? Are you afraid of conflict? Are you a perfectionist? And it had all these questions, and in my head I kept thinking, yes, yes, yes. And I really thought the ending was going to be something like, congratulations, you overachiever, or you must have a 4.0. And I was like, I do, hooray. Um, but instead it said, are you an adult child of an alcoholic? Um, and that was a real surprise. And it hit me very hard. Um, 
I had known that my parents' divorce and some other kind of childhood, if you're familiar with the term ACEs, adverse childhood experiences in education, it's a term that we use to describe some traumatic things. I, I knew I had a pretty um, <laughs> sizable score there, um, but I didn't realize that my childhood would still be impacting my current life in that way, especially if I wasn't really thinking about it all the time. I didn't realize that it would affect my personality, um, my mental state, all of those things. And so reading that silly ad in the school newspaper was a real turning point for me um, because I realized how connected my mental health was to my spiritual health and also my physical health. I had a bunch of other things going on at that time, which I won't go into now because um, we'd be here all day. But um, I realized that as other things in my life were falling apart, um, my health and um, my physical health and my spiritual health was struggling and all these things, I realized that it was all connected and that I needed to address some stuff that was really hard from my childhood. Um, so I started working with a really great therapist and I joined, I, I did go to that group in the school newspaper. Um, and I started to face some really significant things in my past, um, including sexual abuse. And it was really hard work, and I felt like I was alone. Um, I felt like my entire life was a lie. I felt like even to function on a daily basis, I was having to act and pretend um, just to survive. Um, I felt like I could never be safe, never would feel safe in the world. That that in a world where that happens, like, I, it's terrible. I, I don't want to be a part of that world, and I can't feel safe there. Um, I felt like I was disgusting. Um, I felt like I would never be able to have a normal relationship or be married. Um, I felt like I couldn't even trust God anymore if things like this were allowed to happen. Um, and... I hated myself so much that I, I wanted away from myself, like I wanted out. Um, and that, that was a really, really terrifying feeling to just like, yeah, just want out of your own self. Um, and so to briefly summarize, it took a lot of very hard work and a very long process. It was not at all a fast thing. And... Um, I was blessed to have some freedom in life at that point, you know, not having like kids or like a real job yet. Well, I sort of did eventually, but my mom was still helping me pay rent. Um, so I could really focus on, on healing. Um, and I had some really supportive people beside me, like Ben, who was a friend then, but um, played a really important role. Um, I read the Gospels with a new lens, and I noticed how much time Jesus actually spent healing people. Um, I realized how important healing is to Jesus, and that really changed my relationship with him. Um, I hit some big milestones kind of working through in this very long journey of really awful hard work, um, and including I voluntarily forgave um, the person responsible for my abuse, and I told them that, and I said it out loud, and this was a person... Prior to that, I had trouble saying I'd prefer a cheeseburger as opposed to a hot dog. I couldn't even say that, let alone to say, here's how you hurt me, and I forgive you for that. Um, and so naming it and saying it out loud, and by the way, if this is part of your story, 
not everybody has to do that. And I'm not, I don't, I don't want anybody in this room to hear, you must forgive, you must forgive. Because the only reason, in fact, that I was able to is that my therapist said, you don't really have to. It's up to you. Um, and it took many, many years for me to think, actually, I, I do need that for me, not for him, for me. Um, so finally, um, I felt and understood Paul's words from Galatians. It is for freedom, then, that Christ has set us free. I finally started to feel that um, for the first time, um, and it, it meant something new. And I don't know where Ryan went, but the fact that that was the song this morning. When I came in, they were practicing it, and I just stood downstairs in the Sunday school room and boo-hooed because, you know, what a beautiful gift for me. So thank you to the worship team. Um, so there's a lot more in my journey. I don't want to give you the impression that I'm done. Uh, things are still hard. Trauma isn't a quick thing to work through. It can't be just fixed and undone. But um, what I want you to hear more than anything is that I do believe 100% that the freedom that Christ offers is real. And it's real for everyone. I do believe that Jesus cares more about healing than about like handing out to-do lists for everybody. Like, here's what I want from you. You do this, you do that, and follow these rules. I really think that healing is, is very close to the heart of Jesus. I believe that nobody here in person or, you know, listening at home is beyond repair or damage um, more or broken more than what, what God can, can do in your life. I think there's always hope. Um, I do believe that God's power is stronger than abuse, is stronger than alcoholism, is stronger than divorce, is stronger than hatred, than illness, than shame, than death. Um, and that's the good news, right? And so um, I want to close with kind of a final disclaimer and a thought. Um, if, if you can't relate to my story, that's that's okay. Um, sometimes I hesitate to share. Well, actually, I don't ever share most of this publicly. It was the first time, which is why I'm shaking and did push-ups before I came in, just to kind of get rid of that cortisol, you know. Um, but um, I have shared some of this before, and I, I don't want anybody to think you have to have some kind of big dramatic thing to come up here. We all have our stuff. God works in all of our lives and we can all learn from each other. So please don't think like, oh, I don't have some big dramatic thing to share. Um, great. That's fantastic. I'm happy. Um, so I don't want anyone to feel that that's like a prerequisite. And then secondly, if you have experienced some kind of trauma in your life, and part of my story has resonated with you somehow, um, please, please do reach out. Um, I wouldn't have shared all this, since I typically don't, if I didn't know that statistically there's others of us out there. And when I started working through this in college, a good friend of mine connected me with another friend, and it just meant so much. We didn't even talk much, but just to know, like, there's a normal person who has this, and I can't, like, see it when I look at her. And she doesn't look gross, and she doesn't look disgusting. It's, you know, she, she was a normal-looking person. So if it would help you to connect with me, please do. Um, I have not shared this with my own children, so, you know, if they're standing around us, maybe we could step aside or something. I will at some point, but a lot of family members are involved, so I have to, you know, do that carefully. Um, but if you can relate, I want you to know that you're not alone. God did not want this for you. Um, that was a big step for me theologically that, you know, the people who say everything happens for a reason, like, no, no, God can work beauty out of crap, but that doesn't mean that God made you go through the crap on purpose. So, 
huh, God didn't want this for you. God wants your wholeness for all of us. God wants us to experience that freedom. After all, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61 when he began his ministry. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. Amen. Thank you, Molly, um, for sharing. Um, I think it's been a busy year for us, and we've done a lot of things, but uh, creating space every week for people to share their stories, and every story is different, every experience is different. It's probably one of the better things we've done, so I'm just really grateful. And I, I don't know if she wants me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways, because um, I have the mic now. But you know, I sat down and I asked Molly one time um, you know, if she could do anything, you know, for the, you know, in ministry, what, what's one of the things she would do besides City Kids, which is one of the things she does and, uh, on staff? And she said, um, without hesitating much, she, she said basically what she said at the end of her talk, you know, uh, and, and at the beginning of the talk, help people heal. And uh, so, you know, I say that if, 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 if you want to reach out there, she really does mean that. I've heard it multiple times. She would love to sit down with you and just have a conversation. And um, there's a couple people in my life who, are, who ended up in conversations with Molly that uh, were very pivotal moments, um, very helpful. So God's definitely using you. Um, uh, every week we have a chance to share a story. We have someone uh, next week. We get to actually hear the story of the pastor at St. Luke's, uh, Stephen Fuel, is going to share a story. So that would be cool to meet uh, the, the, the pastor of the church that we share space with. Um, but then uh, the rest of the year, we're, we're, still, we're still open spots. So if you're willing to share your story, um, we'd love to, uh, love to have you do that. We're on the uh, fourth and final week of our series Dinner with God. Dinner with God. We've been talking about food um, and how it relates to our faith. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks, there are kind of two main ways that food is dealt with in Scripture. Um, one I would classify as a little bit more practical, and the other one uh, is uh, more theological. So the first one, on a practical level, when we talk about food in Scripture, um, it's really simple. Our table should be open to everyone because everyone needs food. Everyone deserves to eat. And uh, in Jesus' example and in Jesus' teaching and in the example of the early church, uh, we learn that who we are willing to eat with will tell us, you know, how we're doing as a disciple of Jesus. Even Peter, the leader of the early church, opened the church up to Gentiles, right, people who weren't Jews. And he did that with a vision of food. So, so on a very practical level, opening our tables to people who need to eat is what the church should be all about. On a theological level, second, um, so much of the conversation in the Old Testament around food, sacrifices, eating, is captured and understood and reinterpreted through the uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If you dig into the Old Testament, passages related to sacrifice and feasts, and you dig deep enough, they'll eventually lead you to where Jesus broke bread and offered it to his disciples... And took the cup and offered it to his disciples. His body and his blood as a sacrifice. These elements of food, bread and drink, hold our theology. Now what does that mean? What do they represent? Why do they matter? Why is food used to teach us the gospel? 
Of all the things, of all the metaphors that we could practice every month, many churches do it every week. Many churches do it multiple times a week in various traditions. Why food? Why eating and drinking? Well, hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a few answers, but in the end, I will let you know that it's mostly a mystery. Uh, to help us dig into this, I want to look at just a, as a launching point, the book of Matthew. Jesus is in the process. I spent some time this week reading where he offered communion to his disciples, the Lord's Supper. He broke bread and he offered them the cup, the first communion. And I was studying that and I, I kind of went all the way to the beginning where that begins. And that pointed me in a new direction. So I'm going to, you're going to go on the journey with me. Matthew 26, one through two says this. When Jesus had finished saying all these things. I'm going to pause there for a second. He's just taught his disciples a bunch of stuff. Specifically, there are three parables that he teaches in Matthew chapter 25, three parables that have to do with the kingdom of God and how everything's going to end. One of them is pretty popular. You might know it. Um, It's where Jesus says that if you feed um, the hungry and clothe the naked and visit those in prison, And welcome the stranger. In other words, if you provide for the basic needs of those in your community, food, clothing, companionship, shelter, it's as if you're doing it for me. That's what Jesus says. Which means, you know, we can't really escape that practical. The first part, when we talk about food, basic needs, we can't escape it. People need to eat, need shelter, and we should open our tables to them. But after teaching them this, yet again, he says to his disciples, verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. As you know, the Passover is two days away. The disciples were aware of it. They knew the Passover. Jesus and his disciples were Jews, and they were ready to celebrate the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, which are Hebrew festivals prescribed in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. Knowing all about the Passover, Jesus makes a point to tell them that that is when he will be crucified. He's linking the two together. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, make it clear that Jesus' death in the sharing of communion is tied directly to the Passover. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the Synoptic Gospels, they, uh, they have the Last Supper, they have communion, the Eucharist, happening on the Passover. John, the Gospel of John, deviates from the tradition and suggests that the Passover actually happens the next day or the day Jesus is crucified. Either way, they all agree it takes place within a 24-hour period surrounding Jesus' dinner with his disciples, the Last Supper, and his death on the cross. In other words, communion and Jesus' death on the cross is meant to understand through the perspective of Passover. So if we want to understand why we eat bread and drink juice, we have to understand the Passover. Now, they would have been familiar with the, the traditions of Passover. And so when Jesus ties the Passover to his death, they, they might have understood what it meant, but that may or may not be true for us. We, we might have forgotten what the Passover story is. So to understand why we eat bread and drink juice or wine, either works, and what role food had in Jesus' death and why, what it's meant to teach us about the gospel, the good news, we have to understand what's happening in the Passover. So that's what we're going to read for ourselves and spend some time with. You can find it in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. If you want to follow along, uh, you can go there. And while you go there, uh, it'll also be on the screen eventually, but I know the screens are small and sometimes they're hard to read. Um, I'm going to give you a little backstory. The Exodus... The Exodus is a story of God delivering his people out of slavery. I have set the captives free. We just read that passage. They were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to set them free. 
Exodus, uh, just as a side note, this is kind of important to what we're talking about today, is, is a really pivotal story in what we call the liberation theology movement, um, which is a theology expression that's represented in parts of black theology, Latin American theology, and other places where people are studying scripture from the lens of being oppressed. So liberation theology is a perspective of theology that insists that we look at God, and the only correct way to understand God in the human experience is not from the oppressor's perspective, the people with power, but from the perspective of the ones who are oppressed, believing that God is in the business of setting captives free, that God always then identifies with the oppressed. And so the story of the Old Testament about God delivering his people from slavery Well, this becomes a very central teaching and theological device, specifically in that movement, designed to help set people free. Now, here's what we know when we talk about slavery. No matter what else the Bible says about slavery, even in places where it seems to condone it, we know that in the story of the Exodus, God condemns it. And it's going to do whatever it takes to set his people free. Now, as you can imagine, people who own slaves, which still happens today, in other parts of the world, and it wasn't that long ago that it happened here. People who own slaves typically won't let them go just because you ask nicely. God levels a number of plagues against Egypt in an attempt to convince Pharaoh to release them, which is a statement to how stubborn slave owners can be. Um, Here in Exodus and in our own American story and other places and times throughout history, the liberation of oppressed people would require the spilling of blood to force the hand of the oppressor. Well, so far, God has made it painful for the Egyptians. He has ruined their water supplies, set parasites to eat their crops, dozens of other plagues. And still, they won't let God's people go. So God tells them he's going to do one more plague. He will kill every firstborn male. Over the course of one night, every firstborn male will die. Any firstborn males here? Just curious. I'm not, actually. So, <laughs> whew, dodge that bullet. <laughs> we got a few, though. Over the course of one night, every firstborn male will die. This is what it would take to convince Pharaoh to release the people he has as slaves. The spilling of blood. Sons would die as if they had been sent off to war, never to return. But they're not sent off to war. They're laying in their beds. And not just any sons, the firstborn. A firstborn male was the heir of the family. To appreciate this, what this means, you almost have to think about it like we would think of royalty. Now, here in America, we rejected royalty. It's part of our culture in American history. We we specifically rejected the British monarch, and it plays out in our culture in a lot of different ways. So much so that there's a derogatory term used to describe what happens when you are given a position of honor simply because you are related to someone. We call it... Nepotism. And it's frowned upon. Well, in a monarchy, getting a position of honor because you're related to someone is kind of the whole thing. You know? And so uh, think about heir as a monarch. They're, they're treated as special. Even in the States, we read stories of prince so-and-so because they're a prince, they're royalty, and really for no other reason. The pharaoh's firstborn would be the future ruler of Egypt, but even in this sort of tribal world, you could think of every family, every tribe as a, as a sort of monarch. The firstborn would inherit more of the home, more of the livestock, would become in many ways the chief of the tribe, so to speak, in ways that other children in the family wouldn't be. So when talking about the firstborn, we have to think of it like royalty. God is going to take the leader, the heir, the special child in every family and slaughter them. They would be killed. Now, today, I'm not getting into the ethics of this. 
I'm just talking theology, and that's all I've studied, and I haven't gotten into ethics very much. So as somebody who's a, an aspiring pacifist, I have problems with this, but we're going to move beyond that and just talk about the theology. God tells us why he's going to do this in Exodus 4, 22 to 23. He says this. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, I told you. Let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. God says, Israel, the people of Israel is my firstborn. They are my children, my heirs. They are like royalty. And they are not to be slaves. So you hurt my firstborn, and I'm going to hurt yours. This is very Old Testament eye-for-eye stuff. Very basic. He's speaking in a language they're going to understand. You know how important heirs are in the royal family? Well, the people of Israel mean that much to me. So I want to just pause and just say the same is true for each of us here. You are in Christ, one of God's firstborn royalty. You mean that much to God. And I know it can be hard to believe. It was probably hard for the Israelites to believe living as oppressed people. When we live in a world that doesn't treat us as special, when the world doesn't... But, you know, here's the thing. The world doesn't get to determine our value. God does. And God looks at you, especially if you've been cast aside or treated poorly, discriminated against, abused. God looks at you and wants you to know that you are royalty. The people of Israel were his firstborn, and he was going to save them. So here's what he do. He's going to send an angel to kill everyone. This is kind of, I don't know, depending on how you feel about this stuff, it's kind of cool. Um, he calls the angel the destroyer, which is a Marvel uh, villain, by the way. I looked it up. But he calls it the destroyer. In Exodus 12, 23, we won't actually get to that, but we're not going to go that far in Exodus 12, but he says the destroyer. So God's passing through, and the destroyer is following after him to kill every firstborn son. Now, um, I see these stories as more theological than I do literal. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I wasn't there. That's above my pay grade. All I'm saying is that it, it isn't in the Bible because it happened. It's in there because it's useful for teaching, correction, encouragement. You know, that's what Scripture says about itself, and that's good enough for me. Given that, one thing that we know about the destroyer is that without help, this angel of death doesn't seem to differentiate between Egyptians and Israelites, not even between human and animal. God says that the firstborn of all living things are going to die, even the firstborn of animals. This is crazy. And that in itself is an important lesson about death and destruction, the destroyer. It doesn't discriminate. I don't care how powerful you are, or how important you are, or how much money you have, whether you're the pharaoh or a slave owner, death will find you. I think of slave owners in the South in American history. During the time, they would grow old and die and get cancer or flu or anything else. The harshest person you've ever met, no matter how powerful they are, won't live forever. And maybe that's good news. Maybe that's the good news. As an amen. But you know what? So will the kindest person you ever met. Death and destruction doesn't differentiate between people. We will all suffer. We'll all die eventually. I'm sorry, friends. We will hurt. We're all broken, and you can't run from it. I think of uh, Steve Jobs, a bit of a hero of mine. I'm a big fan of Apple products. I had a few more in my pockets. I find, uh, you know, his temperament aside, uh, I find Steve Jobs to be a fascinating figure in human history, a pioneer, and one of the most influential and wealthy people in our generation, and yet no amount of wealth 
or access to resources could save him. And I don't say that from a place of disrespect, from a place of deep respect. It's one of the few things that I share in common with him. I know. And that we all share in common with each other. We can't escape death. We are human, fragile. And God knows this. So he sends the angel of death, the destroyer, to motivate the Egyptians. But the destroyer is just as likely to take the life of his beloved people. So he has to conjure a plan. And that plan is known as the Passover, a way for them to be saved. And of course, it's a meal. It's food. The food, a meal is going to, you ever feel like a, a meal is going to save you? There's been times. <laughs> I can get, I can get hangry um, as best. And, but this meal is going to save them. And not only once, but every year they're to celebrate this meal. They're to sit down and have this meal as a way of remembering how God saved them. So here's God's plan to deliver them. The Passover instructions, Exodus 12, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. God is giving them instructions, not only for the Passover, but every year after that. And God is basically saying, your life will never be the same, so much so that I want you to pretend and live like the new year is starting today. You know all that anticipation you have in the new year? You know, a chance for a fresh start? God's like, I want you to have that feeling right now. Because that's what's possible when God shows up. They get this fresh start. And he goes, here's how the new year is going to start for them. Like most of our new years or big celebrations, it's going to involve food. Verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. So they take a lamb, something they would only eat on special occasions, and each family was to take one unless the family's too small. And it's also assumed here, I'm going to suggest, that the family's too poor to, to be able to afford a lamb. Now, this is similar to a sermon I gave two weeks ago. God always makes room for people who would otherwise be left out. If you can afford a lamb, you have to provide one for the Passover. But if you can't, then it's expected that your neighbor invites you over to their house. So let me say that again. If you can't afford one, it's expected that your neighbor will invite you over to share theirs. Something to think about as we get ready for the holidays. Even here, we can't escape that first principle. It's our job to make sure everyone has a seat at the table, that everyone has something to eat. So going on, verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from uh, sheep or the goats, uh, take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So you have to bring them into your house. You take care of them for the next four days. So it's 10 days, now 14th. Um, uh, For four more days, you take care of them when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Not just any lamb, not just any goat, but the best you've got. It'll cost you something important. It'll cost you one of your most valuable possessions, and you will care for it for four days. You'll live with it. You might, kids might give it a name. Get close to it. And in the night, you'll butcher it. Something I've never done before. Has, has anyone? I know we pay people to butcher animals, but it, I don't know if anyone's. Yeah, I haven't. 
Because of that, um, if you have a sensitive stomach, you might want to tune out this next part. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. You know, just all together. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. These instructions are similar to what they would eventually get in Leviticus once they're out of Egypt regarding thanksgiving or peace offerings. We talked about that two weeks ago. You offer an animal a sacrifice, but it's really a chance to eat together. And you better have invited enough people over to eat it because it's illegal to have leftovers. Once again, we've already talked about this, but imagine at your dinners if you weren't allowed to have leftovers, but you were still required to butcher a whole animal. How would that change the urgency in inviting people to dinner? How would that force us to be better neighbors? It's something we have to wrestle with. But one thing that is different here versus a peace offering is that they are to take some blood and mark their doorways with it. It's like the destroyer is going around, um, and I don't think this is how it actually works, but this is, I can't get this out of my mind. The destroyer is going around, taking the life of the firstborn, and then they come to a house with blood over the door, and like, oh, I must have already been here. You know, I, I don't think that's how, but that's kind of what's going on here. Something has been killed already. The lamb dies, giving his life, and the angel of death passes over the house because of it. The blood on the doorway will keep them safe from the destroyer, from death. So something had to die in order for them to live. That's important. Something had to die in order for them to live. He goes on with more instructions, verse 11. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You remember this story is about how they are slaves in Egypt and they're waiting for God to deliver them. So he says, You better be ready. The moment is about to come when you've got to run for your lives. That's why they're told to not eat bread with, with leaven or with yeast. They, I haven't made a lot of bread, but I've tried a few times unsuccessfully to know that, that it takes, you know, you have to have to give time for the yeast to rise, and it's a delicate process. On the other hand, I've made plenty of pancakes, and that's pretty easy. You slap it together, you throw it on a griddle, it's not, it's not that hard. Making bread with yeast would hold them back. Making something simple that you can bake very quickly, it's great. It's, it's um, like Lord of the Rings. What's that bread called? Yeah, I knew we had some fans here. (laughs) Unleavened bread was for traveling. Easy to make, easy to carry, less likely to mold. It was dry, easy. You know, pack it up, you could eat it while you're running for your lives. And so for the Passover, the first one, it's all about them being ready. But every other time they celebrated the Passover, they're meant to be reminded what it means to live our lives ready for God to act. I'm going to be ready for whatever comes next. And I won't, I won't let anything hold me back. I'm living with my bags packed. This meaning is picked up in the New Testament. Paul is chiding a church in, um, uh, in Corinth of, of ways in which they've fallen short of the gospel. He says it like this, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 5. He says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. As you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We can go to the next one. Yeah, there we go. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He makes it clear. First, Jesus is our Passover lamb. 
His body is broken and blood shed, and our doorposts are now covered, and death can no longer find us. Death has lost its sting. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But he also, Paul, interprets the yeast. He talks about malice, our desire to do evil and wickedness, and how we have to let those things go. We have to leave sin and evil and brokenness behind. Why? Because they're like yeast. They take too long. I love this idea that that evil, malice, wickedness should be laid aside, not only because it's evil, but because it just takes too much of our time and energy. I don't got time to cook with that. That's going to take all day. I won't get anything else done. It's going to take all my energy and my time, and I won't be ready for when God wants me to do something in my life. There's a good chance, like myself, that there's someone here who's been spending too much time with the wrong things. You've been baking bread when you should have been making communion wafers. You're kneading and you're working in that bread all day and you're waiting for that yeast to rise. You've taken the bread of your life and you've worked into it bitterness and anger and hate and you're wasting too much time on the wrong thing. It's time to learn how to make some travel in bread. Live a simpler life. Leave that stuff behind so you can move easier and lighter and freer. This is the life God will give his people. Freedom from these things. Freedom comes when you're willing to experience a new year, a new life, a start over. And you can't start over if you're bringing everything from the past with you. This is the life God wants for his people. And if we refuse that life, we're dead already. When we give ourselves over to those things that hold us back, keep us from moving forward, we begin to die inside. Verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Death will come, but those covered, it will pass over. It won't touch them. This is the gospel. And as old as the story of the Passover, friends, death is unavoidable. It'll catch us all. Even, even while alive, death seems to creep in and how we treat each other with malice and wickedness and how we view the world and our depression and our fear and our worries and our mistakes. Death creeps in and saps us of our life and takes, makes life difficult. But God has made a way. Blood would be spilled, but not ours, another's. Jesus, our Passover lamb, would hang on a cross. And when we stand in the shadow of Jesus, death and destruction can't find us. This is the gospel. This is good news. And you want to know why it's food? Why this was accomplished in a meal? Why, why there were sacrifices tied to meals? And why even the New Testament Christians would eat bread and drink from the cup? Why this food is meant to teach us something? It's far more obvious and simple than you can imagine. I shared this briefly a couple weeks ago, and it's, it's worth repeating. You see, food is essential to life itself. So why God expects us to make sure everyone has enough. Why there's always a seat at the table for people who need it. They, uh, if they don't have enough, they won't survive. And that's why food holds our theology. If we don't eat, we will die. If you don't eat, you will die. Same with every other basic necessity in life. This is the interesting thing about food. You see, in order to eat, something else has to die. It's the circle of life. Whether it's an animal or a plant. Even if you're vegan or vegetarian, the life of plants is given, often in order to produce food. Plants are alive, and they have to give of themselves 
in order for us to live. So if we don't eat, we die. But in order to eat, something else has to die. See, the people of Israel in most cultures in history knew this simple truth about the world. When they, when they took a lamb into their house and cared for it for four days, and it's such an interesting detail, isn't it? They had to have that lamb in their house or they had to they, they maybe the, the, and, and care for it and then they had to slaughter it. Take a knife and slit its throat and drain its blood and watch the life of the lamb go from it. They would realize that it gave its life so that they could have something to eat. They understood that in order for them to live, something else had to die. You know, we talk about animal sacrifices as being this barbaric thing, but friends, I mean, you compare it to the animal factories that we get our meat from, and it, I don't think it's barbaric at all. I think it's very tender, very meaningful, very personal. Like a hunter will tell you, and I've been friends with a few hunters, my systematic, some of this comes from, I've said this before, some of this comes from my systematic theologian who was a hunter, and he would tell you, you never really understood what's going on in the Old Testament until you, until you take the life of the animal you're going to eat. Whereas I go to the store and get it wrapped in plastic, I don't even, I was trying to explain to Finn that, well, Finn was asking questions about where chicken meat comes from. That's a conversation. God says, in the end, long after the Passover, God looked at the world and he said, if life has to come from death, if someone has to die in order for people to live, then let it be me. That's the gospel. God says, I'll be the Passover lamb. Spill my blood. If blood has to be spilled in order for my people to be free from oppression, then let that blood be mine. If a body has to be broken in order for life to, to, for someone else to have a life, then let that body be mine. That's the gospel. God said, enough with death. I'm so fed up with death and destruction. I will take on death face to face and in the end, conquer it. Jesus dies, not at the hand of God, at the hand of evil and wickedness and malice, people broken by sin and greed and power. We just read it. At the hands of Pontius Pilate, the government, it was legal. Jesus' death and crucifixion was legal. Broken systems killed Jesus. He died at the hands of people and their broken systems, but then he rose again, defeating death. When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminded of this. We're supposed to be reminded of this. We eat this bread and we drink this cup, calling it the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, a reminder that in order for me to live, another had to die. And God wouldn't put that on anyone or anything else anymore. God died and rose again so that we might have life. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. We trust that your Holy Spirit is able to work in and through us Make us into the body of Christ. Your beloved community, heirs of the future kingdom, people who have been set apart and who are special in your sight and loved by you, that you would love us so much that you would watch over us and care for us. We give you thanks. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, uh, just in a second, I'm going to dismiss us with a blessing. And before I do, I want to let you know that I'm going to take uh, our elements of um, bread and juice, and I'm going to hang head over to the fellowship hall. If you want communion, we've had it a couple weeks in a row, so I'm just doing it a little differently this week. If you want it, you can come over, and I'll, I'll offer it to you. Uh, if you want to just chat or ask me a question, you can do that. Um, I'll just be in the fellowship hall available for, you know, uh, for chat or whatever. Um, and uh, you're welcome to do that, or you're welcome to head out um, and... Uh, and go on with your day. Uh, I'll leave you this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
Lord, make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. See you all next week.